the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. Do you ever see something flash by you, like a sign, a bumper sticker, maybe a quote, a line from a friend or a family member, a post on social media, and you can't get it out of your head the rest of the day? Maybe call it a philosophical earworm, though the philosophy itself may not be immediately evident. I suppose like a musical earworm from time to time where you need to hear all the words to get that tune out of your head. But it's almost never a bad thing. There's usually a reason for it sticking with you. And I had that this morning with a simple tweet I read from someone I don't know. The post was this, quote, what are the classics of children's literature? Close quote, close question. Three things immediately struck me by this simple tweet. I haven't been able to get out of my head all day. Thing one. In an earlier age, before the modern fashions of education, before the campaign against dead white males, somewhere prior to 1989 or so, this question would not be asked because it wouldn't need to be. We used to call those items, those books, those words, the canon or the canon of Western literature. Canon comes from the word rule in Latin, and it also comes with a great ecclesiastical history. Thing two. I guess we can't assume great allies, friends, or people we don't know, but people of goodwill will truly, you know, that they don't know where to go. We can't assume that they know where to go to get the good stuff anymore. We shouldn't assume that all of this is just readily self-evident amongst everyone we know. When we assume that, we do it at our peril, which is why George Orwell was so prescient When he wrote, we now have sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. I'll come back to that quote in a moment. But it struck me when we use that quote, and we tend to find use to deploy that quote a lot these days. This is what we're talking about. And finally, thing three. Why does it actually feel like a subversive activity to supply the answer when you supply the answer? It almost feels like you're smuggling a Bible or other forbidden book to a refusenik in the Soviet Union, which, interestingly, was no longer an issue just about the same year I also mentioned when it started becoming an issue here, 1989. But since then, and with increasing rapidity and suffusion, it does feel like a subversive activity. I know it shouldn't make you feel this way, but when's the last time you had the occasion to say, Why can't my child learn a little about George Washington or do we teach Shakespeare anymore? And does a small part of you feel like before you pose that question to a teacher or a principal or a school board, it would be met with resistance, almost almost as if you had to gird your loins or brain just a little before asking that question, almost as if you had to prepare for what we might politely call some pushback? A version of this question started cropping up, as I say, in the 80s, asking what is it high school students should be exposed to, already the vanishing frame of reference having begun to propel itself into our pedagogy. 
Bill Bennett asked hundreds of respected scholars, and they came back with a list of works that at least 50 percent of them agreed on. Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, Dickens' Great Expectation and Tale of Two Cities, Plato's Republic, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, uh, Sophocles' Oedipus, Melville's Moby Dick, Orwell's 1984, Thoreau's Walden, poems of Robert Frost, Whitman's Leaves of Grass, The Great Gatsby, The Canterbury Tales, Aristotle's Politics, Emily Dickinson's Poems, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, William Faulkner, Catcher in the Rye, this sort of list. Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, if we go back to George Orwell's quote a moment about now it's the first task of the intelligent to restate the obvious, let me give you the full context of that quote. It's this, quote, Every war when it comes or before it comes is represented not as a war but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. But if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. All the war propaganda, all the screaming and lies and hatred comes invariably from people who are not fighting. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidarity to pure wind. War against a foreign country only happens when the money classes think they're going to profit from it. Nationalism is power hunger tempted, tempered by self-deception. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. We have now sunk to a depth that which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear in times of universal deceit. Telling the truth will be a revolutionary act, close quote. Truth-telling becomes a revolutionary act, Orwell says, almost as closely as asking a teacher or principal or school board or curriculum committee about these books, formerly standard coins of the realm. It's now a bit of a subversive act. So successful has been the drive to eliminate the Western canon that to ask about elements of it, to want it for your kids, you know, the stuff that built the society and our culture, does feel almost as if you're doing something radical, engaging in perhaps even a revolution. But think, too, on Orwell's first sentence here. Every war, when it comes or before it comes, is represented not as a war but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. Now think about when all of this started taking place this dumping of the Western canon, this war against dead white male authors. First, don't let it escape that the dismal, that uh, the dismissal of these writers is based on the planting of a seed. That seed is the invocation of race and gender, dead white males, from whence comes the giant oak that the race and gender of the author are now more important than anything the author actually writes, thinks, or may stand for. I mean, after all, quick, raise your hand. What were Shakespeare's politics or J.D. Salinger's? No idea? Good. Second, think about when this movement developed during the height of the Reagan revolution, when it was politically waged and represented that Ronald Reagan was a homicidal maniac. That's what the Democratic Party's ads said, that he'd start a war with the Soviet Union that would blow up kindergarten classes in small town in America. That was the ad. That was the hit. And the cultural warriors on the left 
They went to the schools to reteach and rewrite everything as an act of self-defense against too much support for American greatness or Western civilization as embodied by the Reagan era and ethos. It's a smaller point, but let me add parenthetically, if you hear talk about the negativity of culture wars in our politics, think of the phrase cultural conservative. It's only deployed by the left these days against conservatives, against the right. They started and finished the culture wars, so they thought, at least, in our classrooms, and then wanted those doors soldered shut. But back to the main point. Yes, this all started in earnest while Reagan and American triumphalism or Western civilization was on the ups upswing and triumphing, just as the Soviet Union, representing or standing in to represent Marxism, was on the downswing and fading towards its way to defeat. And standing up for these right things and against the wrong things does now seem almost like a revolutionary act 30 years later, doesn't it? Interesting thing about that 30 years we're often inclined to quote Ronald Reagan, who used variations of this line at various times, including his inaugural speech as governor. The line, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. What's a generation? Oh, 30 years. Well, here we are. But it wasn't just Reagan, for he was drawing on a vast knowledge of how tyranny developed and sustained itself, speaking for decades about the threats of Marxism. Now think about an off-overlooked line from George Orwell's book, 1984, quote, by 2050, earlier, probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in newspeak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness, close quote. Orwell knew for the revolution, wisdom and the lingua franca, the Western canon had to be destroyed. How else could you, after all, see freedom as slavery? By abolishing traditional understandings of freedom so that the trap for the fool or student is set by the knave or the original cultural warrior. And as I write this, I can't help but point out how perfectly the USSR efforted this. Item, January 8th, 1984, headline, New York Times. Soviets say Orwell vision is a reality in the United States, close quote. The first paragraph from that New York Times story, quote, a Soviet political journal claims in its current issue to have pinpointed the real life version of George Orwell's novel 1984 in the United States under a big brother named Ronald Reagan. The Weekly New Times, published in Russian and in several foreign languages, including English, contends that all the characteristics of Orwell's nightmare society, including Newspeak and the Thought Police and the Ministry of Truth, reside in modern America. Close quote. Ronald Reagan's America. Only where slavery is freedom could this be true. You see, none of this comes to us in a vacuum, ex nihilo. 
It came deliberately and with a point. By the way, as I invoke the phrase ex nihilo, think about what nihilism means. But this is how we got here. New speak versions not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And it settled in so much that not in 2050, but earlier, certainly today, we have educated parents asking, what are the classics? The effort, as Orwell put it, to drive the likes of Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron out from the coin of the realm has so succeeded we don't naturally even begin to think of them anymore. They are so far gone, so far removed from our culture or civilization because so far gone, so far removed from our schools and teaching. Why Western civilization and literature, people may ask? Well, it is from that scholarship and learning that we get things like human rights, the dignity of man, the inviolability of conscience. And thus you can also see why there is a war against all of that. Second, as Bill Bennett put it, the abiding strength of the West was that it was inquisitive about other cultures in a society and societies in a way no other culture or society was. As Alan Bloom, a scholar on Rousseau, put it, quote, it is astonishing how little a Frenchman knows or has a feeling for things that are not French. But to Americans, Homer, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare, Goethe belong to everyone or to civilization. Back to Bennett. We don't understand the ideals of other cultures better by misunderstanding our own or adequately enriching an intercultural thesis by offering to it anything less than the best of what we have. For every person who seeks serious answers to such questions as what can I know, what should I do, what should I hope for, what is man, what is good, indeed to the very question, how should I live, there is no better place to look for guidance than the great books and deeds of Western civilization. Otherwise, we answer these questions in a void, ignorant of the most thoughtful presentations of fundamental alternatives. How else should we think of Martin Luther King Jr. stating, quote, that in order to undertake a serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil, I turn to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study, close quote, those dead white males, their death, their gender, their color being meaningless to Martin Luther King Jr. Exactly. And what did Martin Luther King Jr. do with all the wisdom he derived from them? He drove us and his movement back to our Declaration of Independence in each and every speech on civil rights and the evils of segregation and racism, because that's what taught him the answer to those questions. How shall I live? What is good? What is justice? What is a man? But those most serious of questions, as the father whose tweet I read this morning, no doubt, was asking, where do I go to teach my children what is good? What is man? How should I live? Yes, those are things we used to know. And now returning to them appears a revolutionary act. Well, to that I say, be revolutionaries. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios. Um, 
Unnecessary war. You've heard me talk about it often, quoting Winston Churchill and telling Roosevelt what they should call what would later be known as World War II. Think about it this way. Uh, the Market Watch um, newsletter, uh, speaking about our down economy, says, quote, Omicron clearly dented the economy in January as millions missed work and the virus disrupted already strained supply chains. The hardest punches connected on the jaws of restaurants and other businesses that serve customers directly, close quote. Our friends at Issues and Insights write, it didn't have to be this way. Biden swore he was going to shut down the virus, not the economy. The former was a promise no one could possibly keep. The latter, however, was easily reachable. But rather than urging a return to pre-pandemic conditions to terminate the pandemic state of emergency and the controls, the cl- Closures, the restrictions, the plexiglass, the stickers, the exhortations, the panic mongering, the distancing announcements, the ubiquitous commercials, the forced masking, the vaccine mandates. Biden tried to achieve the impossible. He demanded mass vaccinations, told the unvaccinated to basically drop dead and in general stoked fear of a variant that is clearly more transmissible, but not anywhere near as lethal as its predecessors. Yes, the administration, having learned the limits of its powers over a virus and afraid Biden's broken promise will sink Democrats in the fall elections, is now pivoting to let's learn to live with it positioning. But it's too late. The crash has already occurred with the smoldering wreckage still too hot to touch. The strident left will, of course, accuse us of being evil capitalists who place the economy over human Life and death, while not needing to quote Barry Weiss from the Bill Maher show, I have seen montage after montage of speaking, talking heads on CNN, CNNBC, MSNBC and CNN condemning her for being immature or unrealistic or placing the rest of her community in danger. It's an ignorant position. Nothing has boosted the health and lifespan of humanity more than people doing what they find natural and, of course, a prosperous economy. We know this in part because even when it seems like mild economic setbacks are deadly, the National Bureau of Economic Research tells us that typical unemployment shocks result in a significant decline in life expectancy and increase in in mortality rates for the overall population, the kinds of things we warned about when the shutdowns began in 2020. But there's been nothing routine about the COVID-19-related shutdown shock. It's expected to be two to five times larger than the typical unemployment shock. The number of additional and will add avoidable deaths is likely to exceed over 800,000 over the next 15 years. Think about that. Think about that in trying to contain the virus, which we now all know didn't kill over 800,000 Americans. When you look at the way we have counted those 800,000 plus Americans, the efforts around all of it are going to kill more than 800,000 Americans. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 34 after the hour brings us John Dombrowski. He 
the great John Dombrowski. He is the uh, founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He has his own radio show, The Word on Wealth, heard right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. There was a little Trini Lopez for you there, John. Hope you're doing well. That's uh blast from the past yeah hard to hard to be in a bad mood listening to that or watching him right <laughs> yeah like the old steve martin line hard to be in a bad mood when playing the banjo yeah wow <laughs> speaking of not being in a bad yes. mood yes and not letting um you know news get to you especially when it comes to financial and economic matters you uh you were pointing to me uh to me an interesting article in cnbc about mm-hmm. 401k investments talk to me about that yeah, and it's interesting because today we had another volatile day where yeah. the markets dropped uh, substantially early on in the day, uh, but they made a bit of a rally back again. They didn't quite close in the green, but uh, the Dow did break through into the green for uh, – As opposed uh, to yesterday, by the way, right? Just yes. to remind the audience, yesterday we all yep. woke up with the news and it carried through till about lunchtime that yeah. the stock market was going to be a really bad down day and it mm-hmm. all ended up. Right. And then it all ended right. – the markets ended up right. just right. slightly up, but still, what a, what a comeback. And again, another – uh, rally back uh, from from uh, some really steep uh, losses. Mm-hmm. The Nasdaq did close down negative today, fairly substantially. But generally speaking, we did see a nice uh, again bounce back, which means for for all of the sellers out there, there are definitely buyers coming into this market right now as well. So there are people out there who are looking to find value in the market for the long term, and that's what I really wanted to talk about is this long term that we always talk about, Seth. Uh, and, and there was another article here uh, talking about 401k uh, investments because it says now's not the time to panic. And uh, with within your 401k, experts say to make these moves instead. And, you know, some of the things that we think about are subtle uh, things, but they're important and they can make a difference long term. As we see uh, the markets going down in one day, hitting 1,100 points down yesterday on the Dow, all the way back and being positive. Basically, one of the things they're saying is is as quickly sometimes as these drops occur, oftentimes we see the recovery happen very quickly as well. And if you are a person that's nervous and you've moved your money into cash or maybe you've moved out of equities and into bonds because we've heard that bonds are safer, uh, you – may uh, miss the opportunity of this bounce back when it does occur. Sometimes it's a short period of time. Sometimes it may take a little longer. But again, if you've got time on your side uh, and you don't time things just right, you can miss out on this opportunity. And then another thing they're talking about is balance to the portfolio. And this is something that I'm going to talk about on my radio show, too, this Saturday, Uh which is oftentimes when we see either rises in the market we may see an overweight in equities versus bonds, depending on the balance of our portfolio in a balanced portfolio of, say, 50 percent stocks, 50 percent bonds. If the markets rally quite uh, you know, uh, steeply, we may see uh, uh, the value of our equities increase to 60 percent and then 40 percent in bonds. And that's out of balance for maybe what our risk tolerance is. So we have to look at that and make adjustments. And conversely, if the markets go down, well, then you may be overexposed in bonds and underexposed in equities. So you may have to reallocate into more equities from your positions. So you need to look at this. And that's why it's important to work with an advisor, uh, because oftentimes we're busy working, doing everything we're doing, and we forget, right? Well, uh, yes. And one of the things you're great at, John, is distilling you know, some of the techno speak to the on. So when we talk equities and bonds, we're talking typical stocks versus typical bonds? Yes, 
yeah, it could be bond funds or individual stocks or ETFs, whatever it might be. Uh, but yes, we're talking about equities versus bonds in a portfolio. Yes, stocks versus bonds. Okay, great. And when we talk, I mean, there's an, uh, speaking of bonds, there's this there's this uh, piece at the Wall Street Journal. You may or may not have read it. It doesn't matter. You'll know how to deal with it, uh, regardless. There's an article that had me curious: why bond yields are a key barometer of the economy. What what why what do we look for when we look at bonds, and what are we talking about when we talk about bonds? Well, bonds generally, I think we mentioned this in the past, and, and are nothing more than a loan to a company, or if they're that's corporate bonds. Uh, but if they are U.S. Treasury bonds, well, then that's basically us buying debt of the United States government, right? So it's basically us lending money to the government or to an institution, a corporation, and they're willing to pay a certain interest rate back for borrowing that money. So as interest rates rise, uh, that is a higher cost to a business, right? It's just like us. If we refinance our house, we're not going to refinance our house to a a higher interest rate, we're going to refinance our house to a lower interest rate if we can because it's less expensive to us. So as rates rise, it can actually hurt companies who borrow money uh, to grow their business. John Dombrowski. Thank yeah. you, sir. All right. Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities, LLC, a member of Finran Sipic, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates, LLC, and Client One Securities, LLC are not affiliated. Tune in on Saturday morning right here on KKNT, 7 a.m. Thank you, J.D. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Bill always knows how to make me happy. Play me a little, uh, a little Eddie Money, a little Eighties Rock. That always gets me happy. What do we play more of than anything else? Would you say, Bill? Is it Eighties Rock or Seventies, Seventies uh, classics? You think more Seventies? We used to play a lot of uh, jazz, and then we got too many complaints that uh, Maynard Ferguson and Wayne Bergeron and Doc Severinsen's octaves didn't work well <laughs> over AM with two. Many a listener. All right, a serious point here for a moment. You, if you, I, I made reference to this a couple segments ago. If you uh, watch, if you watch the um, corporate media on television, CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, etc., you will uh, you will have seen over the last uh, day or two this tremendous condemnation. Uh, of um, condemnation of Barry Weiss for what she said about being done with COVID restrictions, COVID mandates, and the like. And one of the things I just want to point out is, you know, in time, these people will ultimately eat their words. They will have to, or they will be replaced by people who have the credibility or at least the character to catch up to what Bill calls team reality as opposed to Team Fear. I want to say something about fear in a moment. Remind me if I miss it. Let me talk to you for a moment about what I mean having to do with reality. It was in October on this show when we first quoted Michael Osterholm as saying saying cloth masks are useless. This was in October. Michael Osterholm, as I've said before, just for those of you that may not know him, Outside of Anthony Fauci, probably the most famous epidemiologist in America. And in fact, I remember in the aughts, early aughts, when the various flus were coming around again. Do you remember? Like MERS and all that stuff. Osterholm was the go-to guy. I interviewed him uh, when I was doing work with Bennett. Bennett and I interviewed him. Uh, That was the guy. He was a Biden advisor in October. He said, cloth masks are useless. Okay, tick-tock, tick-tock. When will 
it took him, what, a year maybe to get to the point that we had already established. But okay, now that someone on the left or a Biden advisor had said it, TikTok, maybe others will say it. You now see a CNN physician claiming now cloth masks are useless and has been for about a month. Only reason I'm not saying your name is I don't want to mispronounce it. You, 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 you know her if you saw her. And then you think, okay, it was Osterholm in October, the CNN epidemiologist in uh, Jan- early January. When will the rest catch up, i.e. CDC? Well, the CDC has finally caught up, sort of. So understand how this trajectory works. Team reality. What would be team reality? The Hallmans, me, Dennis Prager, Heather McDonald, Jay Bhattacharya, if I'm not mispronouncing his name, I certainly don't mean to, the great Barrington doctors. The, that, that was team reality. <clears throat> and as Heather McDonald said here about two weeks ago, everything we needed to know about the virus and what to do about it, we knew in May of 2020. We knew in May of 2020. All that has changed is people catching up to saying the things we were saying and being condemned and censored for saying in May and June and July and August, September, October, November and December until they got rid of Trump. Now the C- – so we say it. Then you give it about a year. Let the election take place. Remember the vaccine was announced a week after Trump was defeated. Right, because – Corporations have no control when they make those announcements, of course. Um, Things started slowly catching up. That's the trajectory. First team reality, then, you know, a few a few uh, outside Democratic advisors and then maybe, maybe, maybe the CDC. Finally, we get to the CDC and overnight. What do you know? They are now telling you those cloth masks. eh, Let's put them aside. Cloth masks can be made from a variety of fabrics and many types of cloth masks are available, they say. Make sure to only wear cloth cloth masks with a proper fit over your nose, mouth, and chin to prevent leaks. Multiple layers of tightly woven breathable fabric, nose wire, almost none of them had that, almost none of them, and fabric that blocks light when held up to a bright Light source. Do not wear cloth masks with gaps around the side of the face or nose. Single layer of those made of fabric that don't block light or if they have wet or dirty material on them, which is going to be almost every cloth mask. They're doing everything they can to to, uh, diminish the use of cloth masks. And if you go to their page of uh, the CDC's new page on masks and respirators, they have – um, new uh, new guidance on the types of masks and respirators they recommend, and they are telling you don't use the cloth masks. So we kind of finally get there after the anfractious road. But, you know, you can never take the profit out of the campaign for fear. There's too much money to be made in it. And that's why I jokingly I said I, I just didn't think it would still be true. But I think the last time I did this was about three weeks ago. I jokingly said, OK, the first report I saw on this was on NPR. So I was pointing out and I think I even tweeted, why is NPR selling NPR cloth masks that they just told us are no longer used? I suppose the same reason 
people are still using the J&J vaccine, even the CDC after two years of telling us get that is now telling us not to. Same reason. But if you go to the NPR, I was just curious today when I saw the CDC change its guidance. I was wondering, is that what will stop NPR from trying to sell cloth masks and empty their inventory and make a quick, easy buck? How much could it cost to make one of these things, particularly if it's made by slave labor in a concentration camp? What do you think? A nickel, a dime, something like that? Certainly not more than a dollar, right? Anyway, for $10.11, that must mean something. Ten eleven. I don't know what it could mean, but it must mean something in NPR world, right? October 11th. Let, I'll look up October 11th on the break. It must stand for something. Anyway, there you have it on their website. They're still selling these face masks, these cloth face masks. They have at least two iHeart NPR kids' face masks, a kid's face mask. They're selling children's face masks. And if you click onto it, if you click onto it, you will get this note at the very end of all their writing. Please note this face mask is not a direct substitute for an N95 and is not FDA approved. Oh, they'll tell you that at the very end. Why are they even selling them? Why are they even selling them? All of this is just so much of a joke. I wanted to talk about what this fear and paranoia can do in the real world. What's my clock, Bill? I lost it. My bad. I have 70 seconds. I'll start it and we'll finish it on the other side. You may remember at Joe Biden's inauguration, one Amanda Gorman, she was a young black by young, I mean about 22-year-old young black girl who read a poem. It was, she did a very good job, and it was an okay poem for an inaugural. No criti- critique there. Tell you what she wrote in the New York Times last week. It just got to my attention, and it's an amazing thing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. I wanted to talk to you for a moment about paranoia and fear in the real world. I'd mentioned Amanda Gorman. She was the young poet who spoke at uh, Joe Biden's inaugural last January. She had a piece. She's like 22 years old. She had a piece in the New York Times last week. I missed it, and it was recently sent to me. Why I almost didn't read my poem at the inauguration. May I read you just a little? It's told like this. She wrote this. Amanda Gorman performed at the inauguration and the rest is history. The truth is I almost declined to be the inaugural poet. Why? I was terrified. I was scared of failing my people, my poetry, but I was also terrified on a physical level. COVID was raging and my age group couldn't get vaccinated. Yet. Just this was an outdoor performance, by the way, let's recall. Just a few weeks before, domestic terrorists assaulted the U.S. Capitol, the very steps where I would recite. I didn't know then that I'd become famous, but I did know at the inauguration I was going to become highly visible, which is a very dangerous thing to be in America, especially if you're black and outspoken and have no secret service. She goes on and on. My mom had us crouch in our living room so that she could practice shielding my body from bullets. They went to, I mean, it goes on into detail how she prepared because of the violence she was afraid of that might happen to her or confront her at the inaugural, at which there was zero. This is what you can do when you build up fear based on nothingness. Let me read you something. 
Bursts of chaos erupted on 12th and K streets in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day as black-clad anti-fascist protesters smashed storefronts and bus stops, hammered out the windows of a limousine, and eventually launched rocks at a phalanx of police lined up on an eastbound crosswalk. Officers had to respond by launching smoke and flashbang devices, which could be heard from blocks away, in order to disperse the crowds in the streets. Anti-Trump protests also broke out the day before, and many police were sent to the hospital. That was real violence on Inauguration Day in D.C. and got practically no coverage. That's from one report I could find on it in Reuters. None. No coverage. But the entirely peaceful, tranquil, non-eventful Biden inauguration, not only did she have these fears before— This is a year later she's publishing about her fears over something that didn't happen and wasn't going. You can whip a person into paranoia and into psychosis by doing what this government has done, by doing what the left has done. There could be few things unhealthier, few things more immoral, and few things that are going to take us as long as a society to unwind the paranoia we have been given to and given into from the left. You can make a sick society, and that's the business the left is in. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 